HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Gustiamo, the online store for Italian ingredients and pantry staples. Learn more at gustiamo.com. Hello and welcome to Snackin' Tunes. I'm one happier host, Greg Bresnitz. As we ease back into drinks with friends, we are joined by our newest friend and rum entrepreneur, Mark Barrow. Mark started 10 to 1 rum in the summer of 2019 to challenge expectations around rum in the U.S. and reinvigorate the way people taste, experience, and talk about the spirit. We chat about misconceptions, the intentionality of his bottle design, and what people are missing out on. Later on, we are joined by NYC band Children Having Children, whose new single, Too Little Too Late, is out now. They rip some live tunes and tell us what's on the horizon post-pandemic. So sit back, relax, and here's another episode of Snacky Tunes on HRN. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. So quick to be wise When my luck runs out we improvise Your heart's on display I have nothing to say Too fleeting to see Prefer to paint it off a memory Too restless Suppose So I begin with a ghost The only gift I've left to give you These promises may not outlive you Tremble after the earthquake No 
And welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Brosnitz. Uh, on today's show, we have the CEO and founder of 10 to 1 Rum, Mark Farrell. Mark, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thanks so much for having me, Greg. Great to, uh, great to be here. Yes. Um, you were from Trinidad. And I'm curious, what was your perception of rum growing up as a child and a young man? Like, what did you think of that spirit? Yeah, you know, um, um, it's, it, that's a great place to start, you know, because I think whenever I reflect on some of the journey of creating 10 to 1, one thing I always share with folks is that uh, for me, there's been such a big gap between um, the, the, my perception of rum, rum culture, even Caribbean culture growing up in Trinidad versus the way that I often see it sort of reflected and brought to life here in the U.S. Um, to answer your question, for me as a young a young man growing up in, 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 in the Caribbean, rum... Um, plays such a central role in all these moments of celebration for us, right? So, so I, might, I might recall very fondly, you know, huge Christmas gatherings, me, my, my, my immediate family, extended family and friends, all swapping stories and, you know, sharing some good laughs and some great memories, or, you know, at the beach or at the riverbanks with some friends of yours, you know, teasing them, having the laughs, et cetera, on the streets of Carnival. So, so I always tell people that, that for me, um, rum, you know, it can be in some of these like small, the smallest and most personal experiences or in something as big and expansive as Trinidad Carnival can be super highbrow, white tablecloth and fancy, can be super lowbrow and rustic and easy. But but really kind of that common theme for me is about what it does as a as a catalyst in some of those moments of celebration. And I think that versatility and that diversity of experience is something that has been lost for many consumers when you think about the way that it's often brought to life here in the U.S., you know? When did you realize the perception was different in the U.S., and how did that make you feel? You know, um, I often will recount these stories of, uh, you, you know, we, we've all been on a journey with our spirits, right? So, you know, you think about your college days, big plastic bottles, you know, hangover in a bottle, hangover waiting to happen, slushy cocktails, all the sugary drinks you have when you're out on spring break. And for most of us, um, that journey will change and evolve over time, right? So, so maybe you were doing the big plastic bottle tequila. Now, you know, you have your, your sipping tequila of choice and you, you only do your spicy margaritas at your fancy downtown spots. And actually, well, what I found was um, in my time in Boston, in my time in New York, certainly walking into some of those establishments and really seeing that, that, that for many of my friends, who were maybe tequila drinkers or gin drinkers or certainly now American whiskey drinkers, they had an easy path to keep on elevating their, their taste, 
right? Like they kind of could move on, they could graduate to the next thing and the next and the next. Whereas my choices felt like they remained almost kind of trapped in a time capsule, <laughs> you know? Uh, um, always some kitschy rum that was, uh, you know, I won't call anything out by names, but, you know, we talk a lot about um, the fact that rum has been mired in this narrative of pirates and plantations for a long time, right? Like, like pirates and sea monsters and all these old fables. Where is the opportunity for me to elevate my rum game in the same way that my friends are as well? So I'd say I got, I got increasingly frustrated with it as we sort of went through kind of the, the early, mid, late 20s, right? And at some point decided, you know, we probably want to go do something about this ourselves. Uh, you do not have the common background of a spirits founder, or not not one that I see too often. Um, right. You went to MIT when you were 16, uh, Cambridge, Harvard Biz. Uh, what did you go to study for, and, and what was your specialty and focus? Yeah, um, <laughs> sort of one long boondoggle. But no, um, I, uh, yeah, so started my early, early career, um, chemical engineering at MIT. Uh, at, at Cambridge, I did um, uh, sort of, public policy. It was called technology policy. So really kind of that intersection between public policy, science, and enterprise. Um, HBS was an MBA, so obviously focused on business. Well, what I tell people is that, you know, there's a very, it's funny how how much timing matters. And that sounds like a very cliche throwaway statement, but, but I'm reflecting on it because I went to HBS in 2008. That was right when, you know, the last time the world fell apart, you know, pre-COVID. Um, um, a lot of folks were kind of faced with this moment of reckoning around um, where they might go sort of ply their trade or build their careers. Lots of jobs people dreamt of having were no longer there. And so if you look at my class coming out of business school, and same is probably true if you looked at the Stanford kids and stuff as well, a lot of entrepreneurs came out of that cohort, uh, out of that vintage. And so even though, yes, focused on business and all of that, I think that like we had a very strong pivot to entrepreneurship, this question of how and where you were going to sort of make your own mark, uh, tell your own story, and hopefully create a product or a service you could you could share with the world. But you didn't go right into spirits. You were you were handpicked by Howard Schultz uh, to be the youngest VP at Starbucks during your time there. It was almost like a post post uh, MBA. What were some of the skills and insights that you picked up from that hands on training that you still retain with you today? Yeah, hundred uh, percent. That's that, that's a great way of describing it. It, it was. Um, it, it became an amazing finishing school for me before I even realized it really. Right. I think, um, and that might sound weird to some folks, right? Like, you know, you join this multinational mega corp selling coffee and like, wait, that's a finishing school for being an entrepreneur and selling rum. Right. But, but, um, it gave me a, a couple, a couple incredible things. Number one, actually I got my entrepreneurial mojo back there. So when you look at a guy like Howard who has built this remarkable company and you see, um, how much of, who he is and what he cares about has been translated into the vision and the sense of purpose uh, and, and ultimately the sense of scale of, of the business and the brand. It makes you as a young, young entrepreneur ask yourself the question, what would it look like for me to go do that? Right? Like, What's my version of that? Telling a story that is uniquely personal to me. Um, I think from a finishing school perspective, also gave me an incredible sense of, of, of or incredible appreciation for brand discipline. Um, um, Howard and therefore Starbucks have a very clear sense of what they will and won't do, what things fit within the moorings of the brand and what things don't. And I think that we've, uh, hopefully that's appreciated in market, but we've tried to be 
quite consistent with that approach in bringing 10 to 1 to life. When you think about everything from the story behind the name to the creative suite, to the kinds of places and spaces we put the product in, um, the way we deliver our message and our storytelling. I think a lot of those elements around how you shape a brand in the early days, um, I've actually found that Starbucks experience to be really, really pivotal as well. I see a lot of corollaries between going out and sourcing beans as sourcing the different rums that make up your blends. Where, How does one find the different aspects of the rum that goes into the bottles? Now, the, the 10 to 1 name I'm, I'm going get to get to in a sec, second, but your rums come from all over the Caribbean. It's not just Trinidadian or Dominican Republic. When you are sourcing a rum that goes into the bottle or that plays well with others – what are some of the characteristics and what does that journey look like? Uh, yeah, first of all, that's a, that's a great point and a, 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 great, a great parallel to draw. You know, sort of, um, you know, we, we would sit in uh, meetings at Starbucks and sort of do a coffee, uh, you know, do a coffee tasting. Uh, we talk about the different roast curves, the different blend profiles, and, and, and it, it gives you a sense of appreciation for what craft can look like and different ways that it can manifest. And so I think with 10 to 1, um, I'm bringing a little bit of that perspective, not, not, not copy paste, but like, I think it's, there's some influence there in, in telling that blend story. So, so 10 to 1 is not the story of a Trinidadian creating a Trinidadian rum. I want to actually find a way to highlight and showcase the different distillation methods, the different provenance, the different terroir from around the region, bring those to life in a blend that, 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 that feels super unique and ultimately very special. And so that process for me was a function of trying to go out understand, you know, if, if you look at uh, Trinidadian versus Jamaican rums, for example, right, we're, we're, we're on opposite ends of the, uh, the Caribbean archipelago, uh, the soil composition in the two countries is super different, right? So, uh, you know, people think of Caribbean islands, but really Trinidad is an, is a, is an offshoot of South America, right? It's, it's kind of broken off the end of Venezuela. We have the same oil and natural gas vein that they do. And so the composition of the soil is different. The, the primary distillation methods, pot still in Jamaica versus column still in Trinidad are quite different. Um, you know, Jamaicans lean more into sort of like the overproof or extra proof sort of um, a, a, a manifestation of their rum. So you have to really kind of go in and understand, um, really kind of end to end how these different rums come to be. And as you're building the blend, you're trying to pick out these different elements that you think can kind of bring something to life. So for our dark rum, as you mentioned, it's, it's, it's four different countries, Trinidad, Barbados, Jamaica, the Dominican Republic. You know, I would say, you know, you're going to get um, the, the Barbadian rum kind of almost acts a little bit as the backbone of that rum. Some of those barrel aging notes, the, 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 the baking spice, a little bit of vanilla, cedar, etc. Um, the Jamaican, that little bit of Jamaican pot still rum gives it a very unique characteristic. Um, people pick up those notes of banana peel, a little bit of the volatiles and the esters that you get from a Jamaican rum. Trinidadian and Dominican rums tend to be a little bit drier in their profile. You know, for us, when we were developing the rum, I wanted to combat this perception of rum being overly sweet, super cloying, sugar bomb. And so a little bit of that dryness, that little dry finish on the back end of the palate ended up being a very critical component. So it's almost like building a little band and you're trying to figure out what instrument each, each rum or each person kind of plays to bring the whole thing to life. You're not just dealing with changing the flavor profile or reintroducing what the actual flavor profile is to people who are not used to it. Um, I've had some rum experiences that I will also not name that left me <laughs> turned off, uh, if you would say, but you touched on the idea of pirates and plantations is this idea of demystifying it. How do you go on the other end of the spectrum and educating people of where rum sits in the Caribbean lifestyle and how it's played such a significant role? 
Yeah, it's a great, great question. You know, to, to, to me, um, the, the, the journey of disrupting the consumer mindset here um, almost has two lanes that exist in parallel. So one is on the product side. I want to give you a really high quality liquid. You know, I talk you through the, the, the beauty of the blend, the barrel aging notes, no added sugar, color or flavoring. This perception of rum is highly caloric or super sweet. Maybe true for some of the other guys, not true for us. Same number of calories per ounce uh, as your favorite tequila or mezcal. Um, we've won over 30 awards in the last seven months. I want people to understand that like the quality of the product is there. So, 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 and certainly even the ways in which you go about drinking it, um, creating your elevated old fashions or Manhattans on the Gronies, um, neat paws on the rocks. That to me is kind of the pillar of disrupting your perception from a product perspective. Now, coming back to this whole notion of pirates and plantations, the other side for me, and as somebody who's from Trinidad, this is of equal importance, equal greater importance, is I want you to understand what the culture of rum and the culture of the Caribbean is really about. And that's taking you away from some of these old um, colonial vestiges and tropes and bringing something to life that feels much more authentic, much more contemporary, much more inspired, right? So, so um I might be showcasing that, that to you through elements of Caribbean music, um, art, fashion, food, right? All of which actually are part of the everyday American consciousness today, but folks may not quite realize it, how much it's actually infiltrated your everyday culture. And so if we can shine a light on some of those elements, you actually realize, oh, wow, like, like, like this culture, this world has been surrounding me this whole time, and perhaps I didn't really know it. We just need someone to shine a light on that and make it more visible to the everyday consumer. We're going to take a quick musical break. We're going to play a song from our archives, and then we'll be back with Mark from 10 to 1 Rum here on Snacking Tunes on HRN. Put me to the test, girl. I'm under arrest No, we won't sleep Till the streets are clean And the levee broke now We got fire before smoke somehow The results are in Negatives are positive Cause I'm a prisoner of love When it rains it pours Oh, when I toughen up now You'll take me back in your arms Behind bars, no more living large, girl. We're flirting with danger, We're dancing with strangers. Now it's just you and me, girl. Inmate number seven one five two hundred three. Yeah, you will be my captor. 
sunshine, my big time, my laughter. Cause I'm a prisoner of love. Whoa, whoa. When it rains, it pours. Oh, when I'm jumping up now, you'll take me back in your arms. Prisoner of love is raining, it's pouring so hard. Yeah, we're not coming out now. No, talk ain't always cheap now. I made a promise that I'm gonna keep somehow. Show you what I'm made of a little. Prisoner, no prisoner, yeah, prisoner, prisoner of love. Whoa, whoa, when it rains, it pours. Yeah, when I'm toughen up now, won't you take me back in your arms? Prisoner of love, just a little prisoner of love. Besides ethos, iconography is really important in helping people to understand a brand. And your bottle is so intentional uh, and so beautiful. I would love to actually break it down, um, starting with the name, 10 to 1. Can you give the history of where it came from and how you arrived at it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, intentional is the operative word there. I want, I want people to understand every element of this brand is intentional. So uh, starting with the name, 10 to 1. Uh, which was inspired by the original Caribbean Federation, right, which consisted of 10 countries. So the idea of 10 becoming one. Uh, and as Trinidad's prime minister at the time, Dr. Eric Williams said, uh, he, he said, said one from 10 equals zero. Uh, he's very good at math, but, but he was making the point that if you remove one from the collective, the whole thing falls apart. And so we like to say that 10 to 1 is a brand that is grounded in this idea of community, strength in numbers, uh, this notion that we're stronger together than we are apart. And, and, and by the way, that is not a Caribbean-specific message or ideal. I think that's actually an ideal that I think we should feel is quite appropriate and quite timely, you know, in the world that we live in today. And so, yes, starting with the name, we want people to kind of understand that reference point for the brand. The Let's go to the, to the bird. <laughs> yeah. yeah, your, yeah, your, yeah. Your, your spirit animal, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Um, what is the history of it and how did it end up on the label? Yeah, totally. So the, so, so the logo mark, which is the Scarlet Ibis, it's a stylized Scarlet Ibis, which is the national bird of Trinidad. Um, so, so again, we wanted to kind of pull something that's a direct reference to our history, culture, and heritage and bring it to life uh, in, in, in service of the overall brand. So, you know, you have the name 10 to 1, uh, you have the, the Scarlet Ibis as the logo mark. But by the way, even the, uh, you know, even the font of 10 to 1 on the bottle is taken from an old um, heritage independence stamp celebrating Trinidad's independence from colonialism. Um, if you look at the, at the side label, there's a red side label on the dark rum, a white side label on the white rum. 
those are riffs off of old shipping labels. You look at the old shipping manifest as sugarcane used to make its way from the Caribbean through the ports of, you know, the Americas and, and beyond. Um, we've kind of repurposed that to tell the story of the bottle and the blend. You'll find the tasting notes on there, for example. Um, and even the exaggerated heel that the bottle sits on. We wanted to quite literally put rum on a pedestal. And so um, um, we talked about trying to kind of move people away from these preconceived notions and stereotypes of what rum as a category represents. I think your bottle has to be an ambassador for you in that regard. People always look at it and they're like, oh, shit, like this doesn't look like a, a rum bottle. And I say, well, yeah, thank you. I guess like it doesn't have pirate ships or a map of the islands on it. You could have something that looks very modern and, and sleek and contemporary, but it's still grounded in those elements of Caribbean history and culture and heritage. It's it's not just Caribbean history and heritage. It's actually current Caribbeans. Uh, one of your pillars is Caribbean made, which is kind of wraps your arm around Caribbean culture. What are some of the different identifiers for Caribbean culture and, and who have you put your proverbial arms around to help celebrate? Yeah, that's uh, um, I, I, I love that reference. And, you know, Caribbean made to me is, 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 is super important, exactly as you said. You know, my, my whole thing is you don't have to be a Trinidadian with a Trinidadian passport to be Caribbean made. If your mother or your grandmother is from the Caribbean, that is Caribbean made. If you've, if you've been to Trinidad Carnival or you've um, celebrated on the beaches of Montego Bay, that is Caribbean made. If you grew up right here in the U.S., inspired by Caribbean music or art or fashion or food, that to me is Caribbean made. And so you reference this idea of wrapping your arms around a bigger, a bigger sense of what that means. That's exactly what we try to reference when we think about sort of the core ethos of the brand. Like how do you, how do you build a bigger tent <clears throat> that more folks feel like they can be a part of, right? Um, I think music is a, is, is, a, is a really great example of that. So, you know, um, obviously, uh, well, number one, music is really, just really kind of core to who we are as a people culturally, right? I talked about rum in these moments of celebration. Music is often kind of side by side with it, like, like, like in that vein as well. So when you want to understand the fabric of Caribbean people, music is a big part of that. But not only is that true for us, but I think if you look at the impact or the imprint that Caribbean culture has had, um, certainly here in the U.S. and throughout the world, a lot of that has come from music, right? I mean, yes, everybody knows the story of, you know, Bob Marley and the Whalers and the Peter Toshes of the world, if you kind of go back in time. Um, but, you know, you look at some of the early influences on hip hop uh, uh, here in the U.S. and they're super, super prevalent, right? You, 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 sort of, you sort of move into the everyday, not everyday, modern day consciousness where everybody from a Drake to a Justin Bieber are sampling Caribbean beats. You have folks in the crossover mashup space like a Major Lazer. You have a Rihanna or a Nicki Minaj who's here on the global stage from a Barbados or Trinidad. And there's so much of that storytelling that, again, I think you can quite literally wrap your arms around and give people a different sense of appreciation for the scale of that impact. We would be remiss to not talk about the COVID pandemic. Uh, you are the founder and CEO of a brand that is relatively young. And you've had to navigate what was probably a predominantly on-premise brand uh, and deal with the realities of e-commerce. I'm curious what you have learned in the last year. <laughs> about e-commerce strategy uh, and in balancing it now with the reopening of on-premise strategy? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, so, 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 so my first gig at Starbucks was actually, I was actually the head of e-commerce um, um, for, for the business, for the brand. So um, I didn't necessarily think that that was a skill set I'd be dusting off so quickly in the world of, of, of rum and spirits, but it just kind of turned out that way. So um, 
yeah, you, 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 your, your intuition is right. When you launch an early stage brand in spirits, you know, usually 80, 85% of your, of your volume comes on premise. That's usually where customers discover the brand and hopefully fall in love with the brand for the first time. Um, when bars and restaurants shut down all over the country, all of a sudden that volume goes away. And so you as a, as a founder, as a, as a business owner, excuse me, have to figure out how you go sort of, how, how you keep the lights on and keep the thing moving forward when that channel has disappeared. For us, that was a lot of emphasis on the e-commerce. I think e-commerce has been fraught with its own challenges in the world of spirits because there's so much um, state-level regulation. You have to deal with the three-tier system. So it isn't as straightforward as your everyday average direct-to-consumer D2C brand. Um, but we spent the last year, I think, really kind of chipping away at it. And as many other folks have done, found some solutions there that allow us to have pretty broad coverage around the U.S. today. And so um, whether that's through our own dedicated e-commerce, whether that's through platforms like a Flaviar or a Cascas, which, you know, we, we've been great at moving volume on, we've really kind of turned that into a, a, a very legitimate third lane for the business. So when I talk about 10 to 1's prospects from a volume growth perspective, I now talk to my investors, talk to my team, talk to our partners about on-premise, which is, which is, a, which is a, a vertical 10 to 1 is, is very strong in and will be very strong in as things come back, off-premise, and then e-commerce as a third and equally viable channel. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I, I don't want to say that some brands ignored e-commerce, but I hope that they see the diversity in the revenues as a strength that continues on and actually like something that's quite exciting to reach people that might not be able to get to your on-premise or find it in their local shops. Well, well, exactly. And I, I, I'll just kind of build on that and say two things. Number one is, you know, you, you're not going to launch a brand nationally in, in, in six months or a year or even two years, right? So this gives you an opportunity to introduce the brand to folks in other markets that maybe you're not in just yet. The other big thing that it does is that it allows you to develop a much more um, nuanced understanding of your customer than you otherwise might have. You know, when, 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 when Greg walks into to court here in New York City on a, on a Saturday night, one of our favorite spots and an amazing potential one, but, but I don't know that you came there. So I don't know, you know, what you ordered, if it's your first time having 10 to 1, what the bartender shared with you. Whereas on e-commerce, e I get a sense of what your purchase habits are, you know, maybe what else you might drink, where else you might spend your time. And I think that knowledge and understanding is super, super critical for any early stage brand, spirits or not, but particularly useful in an in a, in a, in a industry like this, where you're typically very far removed from your, from your end customer. Well, Mark, you've done incredible things in such a short amount of time, also faced with a global pandemic about halfway through your very short life. What does the future hold? Um, selling a lot more rum, man. I mean, that's kind of the, the, the game plan. It's pretty straightforward. Sell, sell more rum tomorrow than you sold today and yesterday, right? Um, simple. So no, simple. I, so, so simple. So people, 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 people overcomplicate these things. No, I, um, um, I have big dreams. You know, and I mean, I've, that's always been the case. And that's a that's a that's a credit to my parents and the amazing people and my family, the amazing folks that they are. Um, for me, if you ask me kind of what success looks like with this brand, I, I want to create something iconic and, and iconic, not at all in a hubristic way. I want iconic in a change the way that people view this way. Right. Um, we, we can all think about references we have. Maybe it's in spirits, it's in food, it's in fashion where we used to think about it like X. And now we think about it like why. And somewhere along the way, someone or something came along and changed your mindset, changed your perception. Um, 
there's a massive opportunity to do that for rum. And I hope anybody who's listening to this can kind of feel a little bit of that, a little bit of that tingling in their heart or in their soul, right? But like, there's an opportunity to do it for rum. And I think we want to be at the forefront or, or be one of the primary catalysts of that change. So five years from now, you walk into a bar, maybe it's in New York City, maybe it's in Idaho, maybe it's in Tokyo, and you're like, Yo, yeah, that's that brand. Remember, we used to think about rum as kitschy, slushy, bullshit, pirates, plantations. And now we think about it like X. I hope 10 to 1 can be a very critical part of that story. That's that's really kind of the dream for me and for us as a company. Amazing. Well, uh, where can people find you? Where's your e-commerce? How do people get their, their hands on a bottle? Yeah, great questions. Go 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 drink the stuff, people. Um, so 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 we're, we're live in about eight markets now. So New York was our first market that we launched in. Um, uh, DC, Maryland, uh, Georgia, South Carolina, Miami, Chicago, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. So if you happen to be on the ground there, go to our website, pop in your zip code. You'll find some great places to enjoy it on premise or off premise. For folks who want to grab a bottle right now because you're thirsty and you know the rum is delicious, um, you go to our e-commerce site. It's shop ten to one, all spelled out: s h o p t e n t o o n e. Shop ten to one dot com. Grab a bottle or two or three on there, and yeah, we'd appreciate the we'd appreciate the support. Uh, amazing. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we are going to take a quick musical break from our archives, and then we have children having children live here on Snacky Tunes on HRN.
This episode is brought to you by Gustiamo, the online store for ingredients and pantry staples from Italy. Gustiamo's mission is to improve the quality of Italian food in the States. They independently import the best and most authentic food from Italian farmers and food makers, wonderful people dedicated to their land and their traditions. When you're searching for quality Italian pasta, San Marzano tomatoes, and real extra virgin olive oil, Gustiamo has them all. Shop their vinegars, coffees, sweets, and so much more. From northern hilltop hazelnut farmers in Piemonte to southern sea salt millers off the coast of Sicily, Gustiamo works exclusively with small family food companies in Italy. When you shop with Gustiamo, you'll know that your ingredients are authentically Italian and of the highest quality. For our listeners, Gustiamo is offering a 10% discount on your online order with Gusti code HRN. Learn more at gustiamo.com. That's G-U-S-T-I-A-M-O dot com. Hello, and welcome back to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. I'd like to welcome to the show Stephen Kaiser of Children Having Children, one of my favorite band names that I have heard in a very long time. Stephen, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Hey, Greg. Good to see you, and, and thanks for the compliment. Uh, we have some history. We work together uh, in the hospitality industry, but you held a much more interesting job as a assistant engineer at the famed Southern Tracks recording studio in Atlanta. You worked with Brendan O'Brien over there. Uh, tell me about it. What did you learn? What did you observe? You know, fly on the wall. What do you pick up from being an assistant engineer? It's a pretty wild world. Um, definitely living and breathing it. Uh, I, I, basically lived at the studio while I was there. Uh, so 90 to a hundred hours a week. Um, at that point it was starting to become obvious that the, the music business was turning DIY in more ways than just, uh, Fugazi, uh, and, and bands of that ilk. So, what uh, my this? friend, this was, uh, I started the studio in 2006 and my friend and I just kind of decided we want to learn how to be self-sufficient on the business side and on the recording side. So I signed up uh, for a music tech program uh, for undergrad. That was in Atlanta at Georgia State. And that led to this internship working for Brendan uh, on these crazy projects from Bruce Springsteen to Mastodon, Incubus, really kind of all over the board, um, meeting some of my heroes in the process. And what type of teacher was he? What was it uh, kind of showing, not telling? Was there an education side to it? How did you get knowledge from from him? Definitely more from watching him work. And as someone who, I'd say within a year of, of working there, I, it became pretty apparent to me that I did not see myself being an engineer for the rest of my life. So a lot of the lessons I ended up taking away were more life lessons and and lessons about the way you treat people and the way you create environments, uh, for creative people. Um, ambiance was half of what we focused on making it feel like artists weren't at work. Let's discuss that. I don't think people, people who haven't been in a recording studio don't really, they might see it in a movie where it's just like, you know, looking through the window, but there's a right. vibe like there, you said ambience, but there's a aesthetic that goes with it. What are some of the tricks of the trade to setting the right ambience? And is it different per artist and per genre? Definitely different, different per artist. We were, I mean, most of our projects were within the rock, the broader rock genre. Um, but, you know, 
we we definitely weren't afraid to bust out the candles and the incense if that seemed like the mood. Uh, dimmers were a must. Um, don't want to don't want to be too bright while you're while you're bearing your soul to the microphone. Um, but yeah, it, it was really pretty varied artist to artist. But a lot of artists needed very little. Our, our studio was very homey. Um, wasn't wasn't a lot of glitz and glam. But we had a nice little lounge. It was very private. Uh, no one knew about the studio. No one knew where to find it. So people felt like they could really kind of come in and step away from the world there. And I think Brendan and his team were really good at facilitating that. What What was the transition from going to assistant engineer behind the board to getting into the recording booth yourself and putting down your first children having children EP? It was it was sort of the goal all along. Uh, I'd say. Working with artists of that caliber and producers of that caliber was very humbling because you kind of, you know, when you're young, you you have a certain bravado and you think I'm going to write these incredible songs. And as soon as people hear them, it'll change their lives. Um, in reality, watching those artists work and then getting behind the same gear and using the same instruments and equipment to record myself, it was definitely a steep learning curve. But But I learned more by doing that than I could have ever done sitting alone in my room. Uh, with my four track, which is where I started. Uh, so again, sort of learning about not just the techniques, but the way you interact with band members, the way you get the best out of people pushing them right to their their edge artistically and as musicians. Those were those are probably my biggest takeaways. And those are lessons that I've, I've brought to sessions and rehearsals uh, up to this day. Let's hear a song. What are you going to play for us first? This is our new single. Uh, it's called Too Little Too Late. We have a, a video and, and single release on June 4th. It's actually supposed to come out last year. We we shot the video right before we went into lockdown. Uh, but it's coming out now. It's called Too Little Too Late. Great. Uh, here we go with Children Having Children, Too Little Too Late, and Snacky Tunes on HRN. So quick to be wise When my luck runs out we improvise Your heart's on display I have nothing to say Too late. We heard the word way. 
so excited to talk to you i actually forgot to ask the main question which is how are you doing i'm doing good man how are you i'm i'm good uh you you talked that you reached out to me uh at the end of last year saying that you've been working on this project but had been paused how does the project feel now you know as things are you know freeing up art that you made a year and a half ago how does it does it remain relevant? Do you feel the same connection to it? Has the meaning for it changed for you? How is it uh, adapted, or is it is it still stay the same? I will say that this. I mean, children having children kind of started as a bedroom and studio project, not with a real band. And uh, moving to New York, I, I found my real band, and it's been so amazing to be on this journey with them. Uh, COVID kind of forced me back into the place where I started, which is alone in a room with a couple of guitars and maybe not my full recording setup and just sort of sort of clunking away. And I realized I hadn't been in that place for a while. So it was a really fruitful lockdown period for me. I wrote probably more songs in those months than I have in any any similar time frame that I can think of. Uh, and now that rehearsal spaces are a thing again and gigs are starting to be a thing again, it's great to be back in a room with with uh, my bandmates Matt and Ryan, and and uh, yeah, it's been really incredible. Definitely a little bit of rust to shake off, but but it's it's coming off. And and uh, for a song like Too Little Too Late, we've been playing it live for a while anyway, and just hadn't locked in the studio version. So um, it it feels good to to be releasing it to the world. You talk about your songwriting process as being an outlet for things you can't say any other way. What is it about? these songs or this methodology that frees you and allows you to actually speak your mind? It's a good question. I think as someone who's an off the charts introvert, who sort of learned to 
be hospitable and and socialize in sort of a a way that allows me to function in the world. That's sort of one mode of communication for me, but there's definitely an inner voice that just has always found a, a more natural outlet through music. And the things that I say in a song are things that I just know if I try to put them into a letter or uh, make a, a movie about them, I wouldn't have the skills to to communicate them that way. But in, in this forum, whether it's just the way that uh, a lyric lands on a chorus or the way uh, a melody can line up with a thought, those are the things that, that really excite me when they work. Can we hear another song? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so this is a song called Two Little Red Hens.
teamed up with Forte to make a video for Too Little Too Late, uh, and the whole focus of the video is on climate change. Uh, you've also committed all the proceeds from the record to go to Extinction Rebellion. For those who don't know what that organization is, can you tell a little bit about them and why you chose to work with them or donate to them? Yeah, Extinction Rebellion is an international uh, climate emergency organization that's really trying to ramp up the conversation and put pressure on governments and larger corporations to acknowledge a very real climate crisis and sort of put a little bit more emphasis on the deadlines, um, kind of trying to walk back that 2000 by 2050, we'll be here knowing that if we wait till 2050, our problems are going to be a little too big to deal with. Um, so it's an organization that's somewhat apolitical to the degree that denying climate change can be apolitical. Um, but it's really an emphasis on, on uh, peaceful protests, arrestable actions, and it's decentralized um, across different locations. So I've been pretty, pretty involved when possible with the New York chapter, um, and I'm excited for some of the things that they have lined up. Uh, and tell me a little bit about the video. What is the focus of it? It's premiering uh, beginning of June. Yeah, uh, so... Our bass player, Matt, is an amazing cinematographer. One of the perks of, of having a cinematographer in your band is that you can leverage uh, his production company, which is called Forte. And we worked with them on our last video for a song called Checkerboard Red. And so I'm pretty close with those guys. Uh, and there's a lot of brainstorming sessions uh, over, over cocktails. And uh, we sort of talked about the climate crisis and also... The other aspect of the song, which is really the way you project yourself onto your memories of another person uh, in a relationship. So we we kind of went the very literal route and and went with sort of a theme of projecting things onto people and and uh, memories. Uh, and we we featured this incredible dancer, Holly Sass, uh, in the video, just her and me um, this time around. But yeah, Forte is incredible. And I also do these these fun pizza pop-ups uh, for charity because uh, the director of the video, Mike is also an accomplished uh, home chef. Oh, what is the, what's his go-to pie toppings? He's been mixing it up. He's, he's definitely an advocate of uh, embracing the New York style pizza. He's not a, a Neapolitan purist. Uh, so he's definitely kind of coming from the Roberta's school, I guess you would say. Um, I, I know he's he's really been working on his white pies and his grandma pies of late, but uh, I think he he likes mixing it up. Man, a good. I'm not always a big fan of a white pie because I think it's always hit or miss. But when it hits, it really hits. One hundred percent agree, and uh, I'll go the clam pie route as well Ooh. if the situation warrants. Um, I don't think he's gone that down, down that rabbit hole yet, but I hope he will. Yeah. Uh, well, Stephen, what is coming up for you guys? Tours? Shows? Where Where does the future post-pandemic lie for children having children? 
I think we'll we'll be playing shows again by the end of the year, um, possibly even the fall. Uh, we have a string of releases. Sort of our, our plan for last year was to release a string of singles uh, on the way to building an EP uh, or an album, and we're pretty excited to just release those over the coming months. Um, too little, too late is our our first release since 2018, which is way too long. Uh, so we're we're excited to get some new music in front of people, a new video, and and uh, we're just more than anything, probably excited to be playing together again and, and working on some new songs. Amazing. Where can people find you, hear your music, hear your first EP, get updates? How do they get a hold? Childrenhavingchildren.com is definitely the, the best way to find us, um, but we're on all, all your usual services. Uh, give us a follow on Spotify if you can, um, but we're on Apple Music, Bandcamp, wherever you like. Amazing. Well, thank you for joining us. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Snacky Tunes. We'll be back with all, all new episodes. What is the last song you're going to play for us? This is actually a brand new song uh, called Crossing Continents. And uh, I, I've been with my girlfriend throughout the pandemic, who actually met at a bakery called Two Little Red Hens, uh, which is the name of the last song. Uh, so she's helping out with vocals on this one. Uh, again, it's called Crossing Continents. Amazing. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. And we'll see you next week here on Snacky Tunes on HRN. Stop to admire my reflection from a diamond. be in the shadow soon enough to conspire with a consequence while you're out crossing continents am I reaching out or breaking through you know me I can't complain Spent the minutes mostly black and blue But the day was free of pain She can set her sights upon But she wants it differently fingerprints and all your sorrows written down cause I can feel you
program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.